Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, October 11th, 2017 edition of the Carolina Weather Group. Tonight we have Taylor Trogdon on. He's uh, from the National Hurricane Storm Surge Unit. Uh, we're going to be talking about storm surge. And it, as you can tell uh, from this uh, previous or this ongoing hurricane season, uh, storm surge has been a, a big topic. So uh, we're going to kind of talk about what storm surge is and, and kind of what uh, Taylor does down there at the National Hurricane Center uh, Storm Surge Unit. So if you are watching tonight, please feel free to uh, join along in the conversation. You can do that many ways. We have our Periscope and Facebook live stream going on right now. So if you uh, have any questions tonight for our guest, uh, make sure you send them, uh, make a comment or something like that on the, on the videos. Or if you're uh, following us on Twitter or Facebook, you can comment on uh, those respective pages as well. And if you're listening to the podcast version, maybe later on this week or a couple months from now, uh, we'll let uh, Taylor uh, give his social media account out and how uh, you can reach the uh, National Hurricane Storm Center or Hurricane Storm Surge Unit uh, if you have any questions as well. So uh, that is uh, all the housekeeping rules tonight. We uh, are missing Ricky Matthews tonight. He's on assignment, so uh, Ricky would not be with us, but everybody else is. So let's start off in Memphis, Tennessee and bring in Eric. Eric, um, is it still warm over there? I know it's still warm here in the Carolinas. No, we had a cold front come through last night. After setting a record high uh, Monday at 92 degrees, which is just, let me tell you, with that and a 70-plus dew point, it was just ridiculous for October over here. Um, but we had a cold front come through last night and uh, actually had some nice low-level stratus that hung around through the morning and kept us in the 50s all morning this morning. Uh, I think we topped out around 68 this afternoon, so much more pleasant than uh, than the last few days. Um, but uh, systems are transient this time of year, and so unfortunately we're going to be back in the mid-80s, maybe a little bit warmer this weekend, and then wait for the next front to come in. But it seems like every time a front comes in now, the uh, we kind of peak at a slightly lower high temperature behind it. So we're getting towards fall, and we're very grateful for that. Jeez, those 60s sound uh, cold compared to the 92. <laughs> the, the shorts were a little cool this morning out, that's for sure. <laughs> I bet so. Well, uh, Jared, you have termed uh, this October and August into a term. So tell us how uh, the weather in Charleston is doing and what your new term is. Uh, some fine October weather we're having here. <laughs> I'm going to put up a little graphic to show you just how nasty this has been. Let me uh, share my screen real quick. <clears throat> I'm thinking more and more that it's not October more than it is October here. Yeah, October for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So here's a graphic I've been maintaining the last couple of days. We have, uh, until today, 72 just below the record high minimum today. But 74, these are our lows, 74, 77, 76, 75. So from October 7th, 7th through the 10th, we have been setting record low minimums at the airport. Uh, wake up every morning to a little record event report, and uh, yeah, no, not fun. I'm, uh, you know, just uh, getting a lot of uh, a lot of flack from people right now. Why won't you change this? Um, come, we're gonna have a little cold front come through. Maybe just take the edge off a little bit. You know, drop our dew points from 74, 75 to oh, a balmy 69 or 70. Uh, but then it looks like we get a little more of a reinforcement next week from a backdoor cold front. Um, been watching this in the models for a few days. I'm very excited for it. Uh, it looks like it's going to happen and finally drop us down into the 70s. But, uh, you know, the, the long term, 
you know, looking over the next uh, few weeks or so, that Southeast Ridge wants to hold on uh, rather tightly. So that's, uh, you know, we're just going to have to just uh, kind of grin and bear it a little bit. Usually October is a really nice um, time of year. Things really start to settle into fall uh, here, even despite the tropical systems we've been dealing with the last couple of years. But this one, this October, um, let's just say I am very much looking forward to not having to use that pun much longer. Well, I'm holding Back it to you, to Scotty. I'm holding it to you and Shay. I'm coming to the beach next week, so or next weekend. So, I at least wanted to uh, stay warm at, until I leave. So, uh, looks like James is around. So James Briarton is in the uh, Queen City tonight. And uh, James, you guys in Charlotte have also said some record low temperatures or record low high temperatures. <laughs> oh, I was like record low temperatures. Uh, not not in this Charlotte. Um, actually, uh, to play off uh, Jared's point, I never thought that my air conditioner breaking in October would be a problem, but it was. So uh, we had to tech out yesterday because it was like a sauna in here. And so uh, also had some visitors in town this weekend, and I kept telling people it's not normally like Miami here. This is weird. So, uh-huh. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing against Miami, but stepping outside, I was like, "This is very Florida-like," uh, and uh, isn't isn't normally uh, isn't normally the case here. Yeah, it's been very warm. And James, uh, you guys in Charlotte, as as well as us here in the Western Carolinas, had to deal with the passing of uh, Nate over the mm-hmm. weekend, and that brought some interesting weather uh, down your way, and even up here in the foothills. That's right. Jared and I were live on, uh, I guess it was Sunday, with all those tornado warnings uh, out here uh, in the Carolinas because we were on that eastern side of the storm. And I think uh, it is safe to say, and I don't want to speak for everyone, uh, we all knew the threat, but I think it's safe to say the intensity of that, I think, caught us a lot off guard. Uh, so it was it was very impressive, uh, very devastating, and uh, I think something we will all certainly keep in mind uh, next time, whether it's a hurricane or a tropical depression. Yeah, definitely. Uh, before we get to uh, Shay talking about Ophelia, I, I kind of want to recap uh, what's happened here in the foothills over the past couple of days in the upstate of South Carolina, since that's where I am uh, coming from tonight. Uh, the National Weather Service in Greenville, Spartanburg, as well as the uh, National Weather Service in Columbia, South Carolina, and Blacksburg, Virginia, um, have been out over the past couple of days um, doing some damage surveys from the tornadoes. I briefly want to give you uh, what the uh, findings were. Before we go to Shea, we had two EF2 tornadoes, uh, one in the Lawrence and Spur- uh, Spartanburg County, uh, South Carolina. That tornado was on the ground for 38 miles. An wow. EF2 tornado in Pickens uh, County, South uh, Carolina. Uh, that's just to the uh, the west of, uh, um, of Greenville, downtown Greenville. We had an EF1 tornado in the Newberry County area. That's just outside of Columbia. Then an EF1 tornado in Polk County, North Carolina. EF1 tornado here in Burke County, where I live. Uh, EF1 tornado in Caldwell County, where I live too. We're kind of on the border. Uh, EF1 tornado in the Wilkes and Ash County area of North Carolina. This was the first recorded tornado in Ash County since records have been uh, taken. And then we had an EF0 uh, tornado in Union County, South Carolina, and an EF0 tornado in Cleveland, North Carolina, Cleveland County, North Carolina. So all in all, nine tornadoes, uh, two EF2s. I was able to go out with the National Weather Service yesterday. Uh, doing the storm survey uh, here in Burke, Caldwell, and Cleveland County. And I'll tell you, Burke and uh, Caldwell County uh, got hit hard. I will be sharing some pictures uh, for the tweet of the week of, of what I've seen. But that's kind of a recap of, 
uh, the severe weather and the tornadic weather we had here in Western North Carolina Sunday. So I'm going to toss it over to Shay, who is still tracking the tropics, and it's kind of getting old, isn't it, Shay? Well, you know, we're all we've all been tested this year, and there's just been a lot of activity to talk about. Uh, and, and not so much an out-of-the-ordinary active season. It's just the amount of landfalls in multiple systems. Uh, this is uh, Ophelia here, Hurricane Ophelia. Winds of 75 miles per hour, pressure at 990 millibars. It is moving to the east at 3 miles per hour. This is the 10th straight hurricane this year. So if that puts it into perspective for you, the activity that we've seen in the Atlantic Basin has been uh, full of energy. So lots of warm sea surface temperatures. This one just happens to be... Uh, further east and further north in latitude than normal. In fact, it's the strongest storm of its kind in the month of October on record. Uh, that comes from Phil Klotzbach. He's a, he's pretty much a guru as far as uh, historical archives and, and finding out this kind of information, but it's a really unique system. It's going to head to the east, and then if we look at the NHC track for the system, uh, it definitely keeps it as a hurricane through at least 2 p.m. Saturday. Uh, we think that by Sunday, this storm will be transitioning into the extra tropical uh, cyclone and then eventually it will um, well, I'm trying to get this uh, presented to everybody here there we go uh, it will go extra tropical and Ireland's sort of on the watch for this system because this will bring a lot of wind this is typically what we would see from a nor'easter off the United States coming from the north and up over across the Norwegian Sea but now uh, it looks like this system's gonna be coming up from the south so a southerly flow uh, ramped up southerly flow for Ireland it looks like in the future if we look at uh, visible imagery, rainbow imagery, it looks like there was an eye trying to get a little bit more well-pronounced today. I don't think the sea surface temperatures are all that favorable for a strong hurricane. It's a very minimal uh, hurricane, category one hurricane right now. But you can see the convection really trying to wrap around the eye. It try, it's trying to get an eye well established, but it's just having a tough time. There, there just really isn't a lot of warmth in this area right now. And uh, we'll continue to see the system uh, sort of head off to the east, it, it may it may get some, uh, maybe a tad bit of strengthening. I haven't looked at the actual discussion, the latest discussion on this one, but it looks like from here uh, that it may struggle to maintain its, its hurricane status for the next 24 to 36 hours. Uh, but if we look at the sea surface temperatures, this is satellite version. This is our uh, storm tracker on data scope. And uh, we'll take the satellite off. You can see the sea surface temperatures right here, right about 80 to 82 degrees, somewhere in that vicinity. So. Um, it's it's fairly warm, but really you kind of want 84 to 86 plus for systems to really strengthen. Uh, so this will head off to the northeast in time and then eventually up uh, as the forecast by the Euro and the GFS, both in agreement for following this general track. So if you live in Ireland, be on the lookout by Sunday. I think Sunday or Monday, I think it is Monday is when the winds are going to start ramping up there. Uh, maybe an overnight event on Monday, the last I looked, but uh, we shall see. Other than that, Scotty, it's a fairly quiet Atlantic Basin. I'll go back to the uh, five-day graphical outlook, and it looks clear. So that's a good sign. A lot of us can get some rest. I'm sure there's a lot of work to be done by the NHC, which we have Taylor Trogdon on with us tonight. A lot of work the NHC has to do to uh, catch up with all the storms and get all the information in. There's going to be a lot of retirement of names this year as well, and we still have 50 days left in the season. So back to you, Scotty. I guess we'll go ahead and uh, head towards our guest for the night and talk about storm surge. Yeah, we will. So I'm going to hand it over to Eric. And uh, Eric, I'll let you proceed with the interview. 
All right, thanks a lot. And we are glad to have uh, Taylor Trogdon on with us tonight, as mentioned, uh, with the National Hurricane Center Storm Surge Unit. And, and you've been uh, working with your counterparts there in Ireland for, to uh, get the storm surge uh, warnings ready over there, Taylor? That's a hard no. <laughs> That's a hard no, okay. <laughs> it would be a first, wouldn't it? Right, right. Um, certainly glad to have you on tonight. Thanks for joining us. And uh, if, you, uh, if you would, we'd like to just kind of start off with uh, the, the general background question of uh, everybody usually has some sort of story as to how they uh, got on, into weather and kind of where you uh, where you went from there to get to the point where you are now. So fill us in a little bit on uh, on how that uh, how that evolved for you. Yeah, sure. I think uh, as you guys probably know that people in weather seem to have a similar story. Uh, I, I think we have an interest when we're young, and then as you explore that as you get older, uh, you take the science classes in high school then you kind of find out that you're able to do that for a career. And it's kind of a no brainer at that point when, once you find that out, because it's your hobby and you can extrapolate that into something that you do every day. So um, I've had an interest in all aspects of weather. I kind of started out in winter weather. Um, I'm from Missouri, so I had all four seasons to interest me. And uh, there wasn't an aspect of weather that I, that I didn't love. So I kind of pursued that at Mizzou. And then I went to grad school at Creighton uh, worked for the weather weather service for a little bit, and then I ended up at NHC about a year and a half ago. And uh, during that time, I think your uh, obviously your uh, track took you through Memphis, uh, the Memphis office here. How long were you here, Taylor? I think I was there about a year and a half, so I wasn't there all that long. Uh, but it was it was a I really enjoyed working in in that office, and and it was great to make the acquaintance with you as well. Yeah, I remember when you uh, when you got that call down to the uh, Hurricane Center. It was It was one of those things you really, I, I think, uh, were very interested in doing, but you hadn't been here long enough yet. And you were, I think you were kind of starting to get uh, to like this area, too, especially with the proximity to Missouri. And you got yes. both seasons here in Memphis while you were here for a year and a half. So, <laughs> Yeah, it was, a, it was a tough challenge because I knew I was going to have to leave the operational side of forecasting, uh, at least, you know, for a full-time job. I and mean, we, we move into that operational mode at, at, at the storm surge unit, but at the same time, you kind of lose that day-to-day -day forecasting. And I, and I really miss that. So the, uh, the research side then that you, you mentioned, you do have some, some operational uh, uh, needs down there as well, but most of what you're doing then outside of the actual hurricane season is in, is in the research side, right? Give us a little idea of um, kind of what, what it is that you do specifically with the storm surge unit, which I guess is kind of its own little entity down there at the National Hurricane Center. Yeah, we're, we're a pretty small group. Um, you kind of hear storm surge and, and maybe think we're a larger group, but we're, we're really just a couple people. Um, I think six in total right now, and uh, including, oops, including our team lead. And um, so we try to accomplish a lot with, with uh, very little manpower and, and, it's, and it's satisfying, but it's also challenging. So outside of the actual hurricane season, we're mainly a development group. So we will develop uh, things like the potential storm surge flooding graphic, uh, the storm surge watch warning, which went operational this year. All of that back end work takes place outside of hurricane season. We rarely will do something new within hurricane season. Um, also included in that, uh, we have this out, out, outreach component to, to what we do. Um, so we'll go around to things like the National Hurricane Conference. Uh, any conferences that we can get to to expand our outreach and education about storm surge, we will try to do depending on our time uh, and what we're uh, able to do with the resources that we have. Uh, but then once we move into hurricane season, we kind of transition into a mostly operational mode. And obviously this year it's been pretty busy. 
So does your, um, does some of the outreach that you do um, also incorporate visiting weather service offices that have uh, coastal responsibilities as well and kind of getting them up to speed on, on some of the products and stuff you're issuing and how to, how to use those and within their, within their computer systems, AWIPS or whatever, or do you, do you do that mostly through um, computer-based training and so forth? It's really a mixture of both and it kind of depends on the year uh, with how much we can do. Um, our, our storm surge team lead, Jamie Rome, he typically will try to visit the offices, especially if they've been impacted by a storm, um, kind of in a debrief sense, what they could do better uh, or, or how we could uh, do things better in our, our collaboration. Um, Insight, and, and sometimes that actually will take place uh, soon after a storm. Sometimes it will happen in the off season. It just kind of depends. But if we can make it to things like AMS, uh, then that's a, a great opportunity for us to um, even if it's just a sidebar conversation, just just uh, reach out to the people that we work with a lot of the time. Um, so we try to do that as much as we can, but but obviously we can't make it to everything because there's only a few of us. Yeah, certainly. Um, so I know that the, the storm surge concept has been around for a long time, but I think it's a fairly recent um, kind of addition to the suite of products there at the Hurricane Center. How, how long is the Hurricane Center been, I mean, going fairly in depth into the study of this and developing some of the things that are, you know, the public is starting to see maybe as new products, not just the watches and warnings, but some of the more uh, detailed, um, you know, forecasts that you do for specific locations. Right, yeah, so so Jamie has been doing this for a long time. I, I mean, this is uh, something that, that he's been working on for, I think it's been almost over eight years now, but a lot of that has been behind the scenes and maybe not public facing. But over, really over the last three years, uh, we've really tried to roll out this new way of, of conceptualizing storm surge. Um, we've really tried to get away from datums. We've tried to move towards the above ground aspect, uh, which, which allows people to, to really picture what it means for them you know, at their location so they can make uh, decisions that, that are efficient and effective for their family or businesses. Uh, and that also includes emergency managers. We've, we've tried to simplify uh, the entire idea of storm surge down because it was really complicated for a long time. I mean, even when I got to the storm surge unit, there was a huge learning curve for me because I was not tropical. So I had to come down here and kind of pick all of this uh, information up as I was going and, and, and the various datums, the reference levels, it's just not intuitive. I mean, even for a science mind, it's really not intuitive unless you're working with this data consistently. So, We've really tried to make it such that if there's a storm, we can provide a few simple products, uh, an action product, uh, a make you take action product, which is the storm surge watch warning, and then the risk analysis, which is the potential storm surge flooding graphic. So they're kind of, uh, they're meant to work with each other. And I think uh, so far we've, we've, we're thinking that they're doing pretty well. Um, obviously this will be, this past season or the current season, I should say, will be a great judge of that. Um, and we're looking forward to the feedback from from these various events that we've had. So for those that aren't quite as familiar with um, with just the storm surge concept, you know, here in Memphis, we, we don't deal with storm surge. The Mississippi River doesn't really <laughs> surge with any thunderstorm that comes across. Um, sure. So we don't have to worry about that. But what is um, how does how does storm surge play into uh, the say the strength of a storm itself? I mean, does a does a certain category of storm produce a typical amount of storm surge, or what are the factors that go into how much surge a place is going to get? 
That's a great question. Um, I think I'll start out by saying that that's, I think people kind of assume storm surge is uh, maybe predictable is not the right word because we can predict it, but it's very sensitive to uh, uh, many different variables. So storm size, uh, the intensity of, of the storm obviously matters, but that's not, you can't just use that by itself to predict the storm surge at any one point along the coastline. Um, things like coastal, the shape of the coast, uh, the bathymetry of the coast, um, the size of the storm, the physical spatial area of that storm. Um, and, and the analogy here is that if you drag one finger through a bathtub, how much water are you going to displace? If you drag your whole hand, how does that change? How much water are you displace? So even if a category four storm like Charlie uh, moves into Florida, it may not produce uh, the, the surge that you would expect from a category four, uh, where Whereas you have a storm like Katrina that was huge in size, uh, it obviously weakened right before landfall, um, but still produced this enormous storm surge. And so I guess the overall point is you can't just use storm intensity to describe the storm surge leading up to a storm. It's, it's, it's very sensitive to multiple variables. And we try to wrap all of that into our forecast as best we can, but that's why we call it a risk analysis uh, more so than a forecast. And we, we really try to drive that point home. So a lot of those factors then I would guess are, are all um, kind of pulled into some of the modeling and stuff that you use, right? So what are the, what are the models that you use to develop um, the products that go out and, um, and what kind of things is, are they sensitive to that, that help to kind of refine that forecast? Yeah. So I, I mean, I'll start by saying some of it's experience. Jamie's been doing this for a long time. I mean, I, I've been doing this for about a year and a half though, as of now, and it's it's amazing how you can take some of this output. And he's just been through so many hurricanes that that he can understand the deficiencies in the models and make that up through the human component. And I and that's been kind of a larger topic of conversation in the weather community. You know, will the human ever go away? And storm surge is a fantastic example of how you can add so much value if you've been doing it a while. You really can. Um, but to answer your original question, uh, P-Surge is the official operational model to, that we use to uh, model storm surge, or slosh, I should, should say. And then P-Surge is the post-processed post output from that, and it's publicly available, as you're showing right now. Um, and we try to wrap these uncertainties into it, so we do use the 10% exceedance, so there's a 10% chance of uh, a given value of storm surge occurring at an individual point. Um, and that's kind of getting into the nuance of what we do. But that's why we kind of bake that all into the potential storm surge flooding map so that you can kind of get an idea of the risk envelope for a section of your area of responsibility. Or if you're a member of the public, you can kind of understand uh, what you can expect in and around you. Um, so we, we try to leave P-Surge out of our public facing products. It's obviously publicly available, but we direct people to the storm surge, a uh, potential storm surge flooding graphic. That's, that's, that's what we want. And that's the one then that shows for each point along the coastline, kind of what to expect as far as how much water above ground level. And, and I think that's, that's kind of the base um, yep. unit you're using, right? So I can kind of, whoever's navigating right now, if you go back, uh, go back a page, there you go. Um, so on the top um, right there, it says surge overview. There's surge products. If you click on that, scroll down. 
there should be a potential storm surge flooding map link right there in tier one. And if you scroll down, there should be a few examples of what it, what it looks like for those that haven't seen it. And Taylor, while what, what Shay's pulling that up, maybe for our followers who, who don't live on the coast or, or really don't um, have any coastal experience, exactly what is storm surge? I mean, uh, we in, in the weather community know what it is and, and why it's important to warn on, but for those who may not know a lot about tropical weather, what, what is storm surge and why is it so important that we do watches and warnings on, the, on this? Right, yeah, so storm surge is, is a, a fairly basic concept. It's just the, the rise of water associated with the tropical system or extra tropical system uh, above the normal tide levels. And there are various components to storm surge uh, that we don't have to break down. Um, but it's important because it accounts for the majority of deaths with tropical system, which was quantified by, by Ed Rappaport at the Hurricane Center. And, and it, it accounts for nearly 50% of the deaths uh, during landfalling tropical cyclones. So it's it's something, it was a problem that we knew that we knew needed to be addressed. And so there was a pretty aggressive approach to try to do that, which is how all of this, uh, all of these new products were created because we knew there was a need for something like this. And Taylor, uh, we're with. We have Taylor Trogdon on from the National Hurricane Storm uh, Storm Surge Unit. Uh, he's joining us tonight here on the podcast. Uh, we do have a viewer question. It's from Craig. He was wanting to know: uh, Do you guys anticipate or do you expect to uh, see maybe any plans that you start to issue storm surge watches and warnings for non-tropical systems like uh, nor'easters and, and things like that? Um, that's, that's something that will be decided down the road. Um, that's not really what we're focused on right now. Um, obviously there is water rise associated with nor'easters, but we have ways of managing that right now. So it's, that's something that will be decided by people that are above my pay grade. <laughs> so how are the, um, when you, when you, um, you create these forecasts uh, of certain amount of water above ground level. Are there um, are there ways of measuring that? Then you have instruments, the instrumented coastline. Then that uh, and, and this maybe uh, is a good maybe a good place to bring Shea in too. But um, that allow you to figure out exactly what that surge is and and how well it's verifying against the forecast. Yeah, um, we're we're obviously monitoring the the uh, gauge sites that that are maintained by by NOAA. Uh, those are extremely important to us. But there are also very dense or uh, sparse in, in coverage. So, um, in all likelihood, you're not capturing that peak surge with any gauge network unless you're just extremely lucky. Much like uh, the radius of maximum winds within a landfalling hurricane, you're not going to sample those. Um, and that's that's just a challenge of our observational network. And sometimes we have. Uh, the USGS sometimes deploys uh, these these gauges prior to a storm if they're able to. Um, we don't always have that, so we don't rely on it. But a lot of times, uh, that can happen. Um, and after the fact, uh, Jamie a lot of the times can can go survey and just uh, walk the beach, um, find seed lines, uh, just just like you do for tornado surveys. You you pick out these uh, descriptors that can use to estimate above ground level. Um, and so that's that's kind of how we piece together the larger storm surge footprint after the fact. So Taylor, um, we're talking about, Scotty brought up a good point with the viewers, like what is the storm surge? 
Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was going to ask about the cooperatives and what they bring to the table to, to bring additional data, the USGS being one uh, cooperative, such as universities, anyone else that's able to get uh, readings on the water. But how do you calculate the storm surge? I mean, you, I know that there's a Saffir Simpson scale that gives you general winds. But then there's also a storm surge sort of associated with that that's been loosely used because some areas are different than others. How do you sort of calculate what a storm surge is going to be for an area? Well, it's tough. Um, obviously, before a storm, uh, we look at things um, like the, the, what we call a steric anomaly. So we'll try to uh, understand where the water level is going into a storm. And, and like on this past event, um, there was the, the wave that moved across Miami into the Gulf prior to Nate that elevated the water levels. So we had a higher than normal um, water level going into the storm. So we, we, we try to use that uh, to make sure that, that, that we have the initial conditions correct when we're, we're essentially modeling the, the storm surge uh, down the line. Um, as far as the actual calculation of storm surge itself, we just um, essentially do the best we can. Uh, the model output, um, the gauge sites are, are, are mainly what we use. Uh, and, and unfortunately, there's not a lot else that we have at our disposal. Um, we're, we're kind of bound by where we are with the observational network and the modeling capabilities that we have. So um, we try to back out to the best of our ability what the storm surge was at any given point. So does the National Data Belief Center factor in a lot of times to what your uh, potential surges may be? And, and do you think that we have enough coverage of data points in the ocean? Well, uh, <laughs> theoretically, um, I'd want as much as you can or as many as you can. Uh, it's, and I think, I think whether, no matter what type of weather you're forecasting for, the more observations that you have, the better your forecast is going to be. And that's, that's, that's where we are. But I, I think that we could certainly use a denser network of observations. But you're battling, I mean, we went 10 years without a major hurricane. So it's hard sometimes to justify, you know, you need money to do things, right? So without without resources and without money, you work with within your framework. And so that's, I think that's, if there's something that we do well, I think it's the storm surge unit works well within the available resources to uh, produce what, what we feel is a, is a pretty, pretty cool little product that, that the public is able to, to use. And at the end of the storm, we do the best we can uh, with the gauge sites that we do have. Um, and, and you hope that down the line, the need will be seen by uh, the people that can provide us money and, and, or the USGS and, and, you know, um, we can increase that density, but for now we just, we just use what we have. So Taylor, I want to share a, uh, a picture with you and, uh, get your impressions here. So this is, this is a reverse surge. Um, and I know this isn't something ah. obviously forecast, uh, for trying to figure out the water going out, but how I've seen maybe, and maybe it's just the prevalence of social media, but how often does something like this prior to a surge happening, maybe not to this extreme, um, mm -hmm. but how often do, does reverse surge actually happen ahead of the onslaught of water? Well, I would make the argument that, that any landfalling cyclone, uh, you would probably have, if you could observe it, some, some reverse surge, uh, 
a retreat of the water, at least as that storm is moving inland to the left side of that track uh, for every storm. Um, there are certain situations like with Irma where that would just happen to be more pronounced because the longevity of the offshore flow. Uh, and, and that's why surge is, is so fascinating because it's so sensitive to these the track forecast. I mean, you can have a, a, a five to 10 mile jog right or left of the official forecast track and that completely changes your max surge envelope. So this is why we just simply can't get away with a deterministic model run. There's there's no way that we can do that. That's that's not that's not something that we're okay with doing. We feel like we we do a disservice if we if we use a single deterministic track to forecast storm surge. Very interesting. It's it, it's scary to watch that uh, that kind of thing playing out. I know we saw that in Tampa um, ahead of uh, Zerma. Uh, they came through where people were going yeah. out in the on the dry areas and you're just thinking, my God, I hope that that doesn't decide to turn around right at the wrong time because there's too many people out there. Yep. Um, go ahead, Scott. I was going to say, Taylor, I, I know there, the season is ongoing and you can't comment much on that because all the data is not in, but take us into your office. Uh, it, it's been a pretty active active year. You, I think you said you guys only have six uh, full-time dedicated staff to this. Uh, what's it What's it been like in your office? I mean, you guys have had to have been pretty strung out, you know, all over the place with, with so much activity going on. What's, what's this summer or this tropical season been like just for your office? <laughs> so a small anecdote that we, we joke around with now, um, but as you guys know, we had to shelter in place for Irma as it moved through Miami. So we have a guy in our unit, his name's Phil, and um, he's the Army Corps guy uh, that, that works for our unit. So he's, he's, he's a federal uh, employee, and <laughs> it was just one of his first storms, certainly his first big storm, and absolutely his first <laughs> experience with the hurricane. And so I think it was the second night that we were staying there, um, he was working the overnight shifts, and so we were sleeping in the hurricane center. So all of a sudden we were like, where is Phil? <laughs> and so he had crashed like under the desk and he slept for 10 straight hours on the hurricane center floor and ended up after the storm getting super sick. And he was, he was kind of the, he's this younger guy that had so much energy and like this, <laughs> uh, this passion going into it. And so we, we tease him now because he was like, man, you, you basically died during Irma. So you need to tone it down a little bit. <laughs> But I guess what I'm trying to say is it's very stressful. And when you have several storms that are making landfall of that magnitude, it obviously takes a toll on you mentally. Um, I've really had to try to decompress over the past couple weeks. Uh, and it looks like we'll at least have a few weeks to, to, to try to eat. But um, we're working around the clock when we go into operational mode. So we have someone manning the overnight shifts. They're typically 12-hour shifts. but you support each other however you can, uh, whether it's day or night. Um, so it's just, it's long hours, it's intense, and you just kind of do your best to make it through. And Taylor, that leads me to a, a question for you. When you're working the, around the clock, you're working these storms, when do these storm surge products become available? I notice that they're not available readily until there's a watch or a warning, or how does that work? That's right. Did you use me? Yeah, I think uh, audio may have cut off for just a little bit, but uh, did you get a question? Yeah, um, give me one second here. I think sure, my sure. 
my computer is about to die. No problem. Well, yeah. Scotty, man. Yeah, yeah. We'll just we uh, we'll tell everybody who who may have just be joining in right now. We have Taylor Tribe been on from the National Hurricane Storm Surge Unit, and and like we've been talking about it, it's uh, his computer may have died there. Uh, it's been pretty active for those guys. And Shay, I know you and Jared. Uh, you know, Eric and I, we don't have to deal with this in our area, but you and Jared, uh, you've had your time with, with Storm Surge not only this year, but even last year with Matthew. And uh, it, it's really a determinant factor there in the Charleston area because you guys see this a lot. It's really discerning, Scotty, because we we learned with Hurricane Hugo just how high that surge can get here. And it fully maxed out at 18 feet plus. We know that. Um, we know that. That was a full-on Category 4, pushing a wall of water ahead of it. Even along the coastal shelf, where it's shallower, where you would think that, that that storm surge comes down, it actually didn't really help. I mean, I'm sure it helped on some sense, but you, you don't really know until you see the full impact of something of that magnitude. So you can't write it off. You know, just because maybe you had a three-foot surge or a six-foot surge during Matthew, does it mean that we can't see an 18 foot surge again? I mean, it's really, it's just per storm. Every storm is different. And that's one thing folks got to remember is that one category four is not going to be the same as another category four. And the direction it's coming from matters, uh, very distinct directions. If it's coming from the South, it has, a, has different properties coming in from right off the ocean, probably a more powerful system. Um, it's a, uh, it's really, it's it's all, I think this is a huge learning curve for a lot of us as we go along. We're learning more and more about these systems, which way they come from, and uh, what your vertical and your horizontal grid is like when, when they're coming up with these slosh products. And, and it sort of gets real science-y, but the, uh, the GFS has been doing okay. I think our ET surge, and Jared may, may agree, watching some of these observations, that the ET surge models did pretty well. They, they kind of blew up and scared us a bit for Wilma, but then they kind of fell right in line. They were pretty dang close to what exactly happened along our coast, even 400 miles away from the center. And um, you, Jared, you and Shay, you guys have this saying, well, we all have this saying in the weather industry, you run from the water and hide from the wind. And this is basically you're running not from the rainfall, but if you live on the coast, you're running from the storm surge. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and it's not just, you know, in the coast itself, you know, the city of Charleston has a major flooding problem and, uh, it, you know, it, it doesn't take much to flood. You know, you just need, you just need seven feet in the harbor and you've got salt water starting to cover roads. And so when you start getting that eight, nine foot tide, as we've had, we've had nine foot tides now for the last two years with Matthew and Irma enough, and then you get the rain involved but then you push the surge more inland. And so you have to drive 20, 30, 40, 50 miles inland to get away from all of that. I was seeing pictures from, uh, you know, my neck of the woods. I live, you know, about 15, 20 miles inland. And uh, there, there are people just down the road, you know, maybe, maybe not a mile from me, uh, just completely inundated with surge. So, you know, the rainfall certainly is no good as we learned from Joaquin um, and, you know, that even that far past, we even had a little storm surge from that, uh, with the sharp, with the uh, strong onshore flow for days. So, uh, you know, we really, really are vulnerable to that here. Um, and uh, I know in Miami, I mean, 
good grief. Uh, Taylor, I'm sure you know all about that down there. Um, it, I mean, watching Seidel down there in Miami is uh, just roads that, you know, that I don't think people expected flood flooded. So, Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think, you know, the biggest surge that we, we've seen was um, in the Florida Keys. And uh, I, I remember seeing, I, I can't remember the particular island, but it was like a, a home that was, I think it was 15 feet, 16 feet off the ground. And, you know, the water was lapping at the bottom, you know, of the stilts or at the bottom of the base of the house. So it's uh, something definitely you don't want to uh, mess with. And I think we have Taylor back now. So, Shay, I think you was uh, asking a question, so I'll, I'll let you go ahead as uh, we uh, near the uh, 9 o'clock hour. Yeah, I think um, – I don't do broadcast and TV and radio. Yeah, no, yeah. You're fine. Yeah, we can hear you. We can definitely hear you now. I think I um, asked my question was, was on um, uh, when the storm surge – uh, these updates are issued and when the storm surge becomes active. So if I'm a viewer and sure. I want to come to the NHC and there's a storm brewing, when mm -hmm. do I see my first storm surge product? Uh, P-surge becomes operational uh, as uh, within 48 hours from landfall. So uh, beyond that 48-hour time frame, we refer people to our products that uh, they're called meows, maximum lobes of water, uh, that they can kind of it, – it, it'll look similar to something like the potential inundation graphic, but it's more – of a conceptual view instead of an operational model run, but you can you can really glean a lot from from risk uh, risk factors for any given location, um, you know, towards your 60 and 72 hour uh, time frame. So, um, P surge becomes operational at that 48 hour mark. And one one more from me. What what do you consider a life threatening surge risk? That's a great question. So we consider life-threatening to be three feet or greater above ground level. Very good, guys. So, Any uh, yep. questions? Yeah, I wanted to jump in a little bit, talk about the Storm Surge Watch and Warning product. And last year that it was experimental, transitioned to operational this year. Taylor, I don't know if you can land any insight on this, but I'd love to know how this uh, the transition to operational uh, went for you all and some of mm -hmm. the feedback that you've gotten about the product. Yeah, we um, last year we we had the operate or the, I'm sorry, the experimental period so we we gained some of the feedback uh, and tried to incorporate some of that into uh, the watch warning framework, but really the whole product is meant just like a tornado warning. It's meant is is a, is a take action type of product. So uh, we can help emergency managers uh, make decisions with that product if, you know, we need an evacuation, or if, if they're needing an evacuation to occur, they can look towards something like the storm surge watch warning and say, hey, there's a storm surge warning that's in effect for this location. Uh, these people um, should probably evacuate. Um, but it's been fairly smooth. I mean, there are obviously innate challenges with rolling out a product like that. Uh, <clears throat> but for the most part, I think it's accomplished what we've we've set out to accomplish. But I don't think we want to make any decisions on that until we kind of move through a, a hurricane season like this one. I think after this year, once we sort through all of the data, uh, look at the, the the comments that we have um, that 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 we've received from emergency managers and members of the public, uh, we can begin to move down that road of of, of kind of that introspective look at at what we do uh, in the product itself. Now, one last thing. What's the best way for the public to receive these warnings? 
Uh, we're obviously um, pushing that to our web page. Um, it should alert your NOAA weather radio. Um, those are um, all very valid options. And and obviously, I, I've seen the media has done a really great job with, with using both the potential storm surge flooding graphic uh, along with the watch warning. And any of those mediums, whatever your preferred method of receiving that information is, um, uh, we're happy with. And Taylor, uh, we're going to a little bit past 9 o'clock here, so we'll start to wrap up. One thing I wanted to ask you, uh, and we ask this a lot of our guests, um, you know, this is a fairly new uh, unit that you guys are working on. As we look in the next couple of years, three, five years down the road, what do you expect from, from the storm surge unit? What are your expectations or what do you think will, will, will come to fruition as you guys really uh, start to hone in on this now that you've got one active season behind you? You know, I think for the most part, that remains to be seen. We obviously have internal ideas. Uh, the great thing about busy seasons is that they allow you to be creative. They allow you to, to think about ways that you can get better. And so I think in this downtime, especially after the season, we'll really start to think about things that, that we want to pursue, how we can pursue them. Um, a lot of what we do is tied to um, uh, the 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 financials that we have coming in and and all of that is has yet to be determined so i think our overall goal is to push the entire science forward um and whatever that looks like down the road uh is kind of the path that, that we'll choose to do but um i'm sure we'll continue to be aggressive in how we attack it and uh it's been fun working for a unit that's 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 really trying to push the, the enterprise forward Last question, are you ready for some rest? <laughs> <laughs> yes, very much so. Well, Taylor, we appreciate you joining us tonight. Uh, if you want to, um, how can our, our followers, maybe on uh, on Twitter and, and who's listening to our podcast later on, uh, what are some uh, good ways that we can follow your products? I know we, we've been pushing the website. Is there anything else uh, that we can follow or, uh, to get this information? Yeah, sure. The website is always uh, preferred, but if you're social media savvy, then then certainly use the NHC Surge account, uh, the NHC Atlantic account, and also the official National Hurricane Center account, which is just at NHC. Um, those are all very great options, uh, especially during a storm. The Surge account is mainly used during active storms, so if you're looking for active, uh, like within an active situation, then I would certainly refer you, refer you to the, the Surge Twitter account. Awesome. Well, we appreciate you coming on tonight. Um, uh, stick around if you want to. We're going to do our tweets of the week. So uh, yeah, if sure. you want to participate and find something on Twitter that maybe fascinated <laughs> you over the past week, go ahead. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll start with our other panelists. Does anybody have uh, theirs now? I'm All good. All right, Jared, I'll let you start then, and uh, we'll go through and cool. do our tweets of the week. All right, so this one comes to us tonight from Jonesboro, Arkansas. Ryan Vaughn, Chief Meteorologist at Region 8 News. Um, a really cool illustration of an inversion. And so he's got a smoke plume here from a fire, just a little field fire here, and you can see how it's rising, 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 and then just caps off as it hits that layer of warm air aloft. And uh, usually when we're showing these, we show these on really uh, on skew-t graph uh, charts that might look a little... Uh, might look a little overwhelming to you, but this is a really great illustration of that inversion and why it is smokier at night than during hey, the day because hey. that elevated mixed layer starts to, <laughs> not the elevated mixed layer, cheese, the boundary layer will uh, 
start to uh, mix out and decouple, and uh, you get some gnarly, gnarly smoke if you have those fires raging. Late that so, night. So there which, you go. It's pretty neat there, Jared. We get those in, you know, here in Charleston with the sea breeze. You, you see that happen, and it gets wrapped up into the circulation of what could be a fire inland. Ends up getting wrapped all the way mm -hmm. out into the ocean and back into the coastline. So, yeah, we see that quite a bit here. All right. Anybody else? I'll go, um, I'll go ahead, Cher. All right. Um, had a uh, strong storm over Europe. Uh, in the last uh, week or so, and I've got a screen share here of an A380, one of the biggest airplanes, commercial airplanes out there that are carrying passengers trying to land in crosswinds. So uh, keep an eye on this guy. Oh, why is it blurry? There it goes. I don't know if you've seen that before, but fortunately it came to a stop in the right place. <laughs> kind of buffering there sorry about that uh, but definitely had some issues with crosswinds and uh, I thought that was pretty with a, a little bit of an aviation interest there that I have as well I thought that was one of those airplanes I definitely would not want to be on during uh, winter I guess it's not winter storm over there it was just uh, Cyclone Xavier they name they name everything over there in Europe so anyway that was Cyclone Xavier yeah I've already seen that we already got a winter storm name by somebody else in America. I was like, oh my gosh, not already. All right, Shay, do you have yours ready? And then I'll, I'll, I'll bring mine up. I do. I just kind of, um, kind of <laughs> threw this together. Honestly, I'm trying, trying to, uh, uh, I wanted to get something on the storms, the, uh, California, I'm sorry, not storms, but the California fires. And this is a, a big deal ongoing right now. Multiple fires. You can see here in the Sierra, satellite imagery the fires down below don't don't mind the clouds passing overhead uh, but you can see the fires below all the smoke rising up from all these fires you can see the smoke trailing off to the south now uh, and that will continue to be the case for the next oh, 60 to 70 hours uh, as we have a north pacific high sort of pushing the winds to the south so some concern there it's already it's already claimed lives uh there's been lots of property damages and um and we wish everybody the best out there. There's there's so many fires going on. I can't. I lost count. Does anybody know how many fires there are? I, I don't remember, but I know I just seen a couple hours ago they're evacuating a, a whole town or, or city. Um, you know, ma mandatory evacuation. So that's some, some terrible stuff going on out there. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you that the non-operational Ghost 16 imagery though coming out of this has been pretty pretty amazing to be able to see the hot spots on the on the fire channel and and high, high uh, resolution on where that smoke is going. It's got to be a pretty good benefit to the weather service to be able to know, uh, you know, where those advisories need to be for, uh, for poor air quality. Yes. Yes, indeed. I'm going to pull mine up right quick. I will say I wanted to do the Mike uh, Seidel with the, the chair blowing by, but I think everybody's already seen that one. So uh, this was uh, Brad Panovich tweeted this out, but this is one of the nine tornadoes, uh, that affected Western North Carolina here. This one was in Cleveland County. Uh, as you can see, uh, it's going uh, uh, across the screen here. Uh, if you want to follow my Twitter page, uh, I've got numerous videos of various uh, tornadoes here uh, that happened in the Western Carolinas, but this is just one that was, uh, that was one of uh, many here in Western North Carolina over the weekend. So um, that was that. And we'll uh, see if Taylor's got his ready. 
I was actually going to uh, <laughs> use the same thing as Shay did, but my I, I couldn't <laughs> find it on my own Twitter, but there was a picture of the, the wildfire aftermath that really sh shook me when I first saw it a couple of days ago. Um, I don't know if it's it's able to be searched by any of you I that can screen think, share, but yeah, I think I've got it. I, I shared it. Let me pull it up right quick while you're talking. Yeah, to me, I mean, wildfires are one of those really scary weather events that that I think, unless you're in an area that experiences wildfires, I don't think people quite understand. And so, when you see something like this, it really drives home exactly how quick a fire can move and how damaging it can be so this when I saw that it, it caught me off guard too I didn't realize it was so uh, that I didn't realize the extent of the damage when I saw that it, it really it took my breath away is absolutely devastating absolutely there was one more um sky this was the one that I was I was looking for is one that I posted um, this is a web sky app uh, blue sky it's latest surface smoke and just sort of a sped up animated version of, of what, what it believes the winds will be doing. So you can see this strong push to the south. And so a lot of these fires with this with a sped up wind are going to be cutting through these valleys. And, um, you know, there's there's a lot more to deal with with these fires. And they've gotten some of them out, but a lot of them are still rampant. And there's still a lot of properties at risk. So, yeah, hope the best for them. Yes, indeed. So, uh, you know, we'll continue to monitor that uh, throughout the weekend. But we want to thank everyone again for watching the Carolina Weather Group. Uh, next week, we don't really have a topic to talk about. It's an open week, so it's a boys' night, I guess, around the old Carolina Weather Group. We'll find something to talk about. But after that, uh, Kat Kimball will be joining us on October 25th. And then we have uh, New Zealand weather on with Chester Lemkin on uh, November 1st. And then November 8th, we're really excited about this, the JPSS-1 satellite launch. Uh, it's the polar satellites that they're launching uh, into space. Uh, we're going to be talking to those folks about uh, what uh, we can expect out of that as well. So that's the uh, next couple of weeks here on the Carolina Weather Group. As always, any uh, suggestions, any topic, or any uh, particular person you'd like for us to bring on the show, uh, we're always open to those suggestions, so send them our way. Also, uh, make sure you share us. Uh, our Facebook and Twitter pages, um, like us on iTunes and Stitcher and all that other good stuff. Uh, we uh, are here to please, so anything you want to see, let us know. You guys have anything before we close? All right, then, everybody have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here next Wednesday night for the Carolina Weather Group.